This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Lecture 9, Amos, His Announcements, Visions, and the Use of Amos in the New Testament. You recall in the previous lecture, we got an overview of the book of Amos um, in terms of when it was written and its basic structure. I suggested that the book was written sometime after the 750s, perhaps before the destruction of Samaria in 722 or after the destruction of Samaria in 722, but it was written for Judahites who were looking at the troubles of the north um, perhaps even the absolute destruction of the north that had taken place with the fall of Samaria. And Amos structures the book in four main sections. First, he begins with the concept of God's people being judged along with the other nations. And then he moves from that concept to the end of the book, as it were, in chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, to God's people being blessed above the nations. Then intervening between these first and last sections, is the a series of announcements that Amos made against God's people and then visions he had against God's people. So we are moving to the middle section of the book of Amos, Roman number one, the announcements of the prophet. Let's look first at the basic content of these announcements. Figure 9-1 illustrates for us how in chapters 3 through 614, we have a series of announcements by Amos, all of which expose the sin of Israel and warn of the judgments that are going to come against Israel and Judah in 734 as well as 722 and 586. These are oracles of judgment. We have uh, several laments and then oracles of woe as well. Israel, of course, received most of these oracles orally from Amos, but then the book of Amos is written for Judahites to hear as they reflect on their own circumstances in the light of these oracles. What then is the literary structure of this material? Roman numeral 1, letter B. Figure 9.2 gives us the basic literary structure of chapters 3.9 through 6.14. This is a series of announcements against Israel, and then there are some announcements even against Judah that are tucked away in these oracles. First, we have a case against Israel. A case is built through several different oracles of judgment, a lament over Israel's punishment, a woe over her punishment, and then a divine oath against Israel. We're going to begin by looking first at figure 9.3 and unpacking, we're going to unpack these various sections of the book. You'll remember that we had a section of the book of Hosea that we called building a case against Israel. In many respects, Amos does something very similar to this in a series of modified lawsuits. Figure 9.3 gives us an outline of these series of lawsuits. This series of modified lawsuits deals with a number of different topics. First, royal fortifications in chapter 3, 9 through 12. You can see the summons that has very much of a legal character to it, assemble yourselves, 3.9. And the accusation is given in 3.10 that they have an ignorance of what is the right thing to do. And they also have violence filling the land. And what is the sentence that's offered against these sins? Verses 11 and 12. 
an enemy will overrun the land. He will pull down the strongholds and plunder your fortresses. As a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved. The notion here is that Israel will just barely survive the attacks of the foreign enemies. And of course, this is exactly what happens in the, in the period of the Pekah and Rezin's coalition against the Assyrians, 734, as well as 722. The second section deals with altars and mansions. Here, Amos uh, says we must, they must come together to hear and to hear and have the testimony be given against the people and the response is, the sentences will be destroyed and that these mansions that they build will be utterly destroyed as well. Once again, you can read in this passage and you can see, for example, in verse 15, how wealthy the people were. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed. The mansions will be demolished. This was a time during Jeroboam's reign when the people of Israel were quite wealthy and um, at least a, a portion of the nation was wealthy. And they used this wealth for their own desires and their own exploitation of their fellow Israelite. And so Amos announces that their wealth will be destroyed. Then in chapter 4, verse 1, we have another summons, hear this word, along with the accusation. Notice how he addresses the women, the wealthy women of northern Israel. Chapter 4, verse 1, hear this words, this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The cows of Bashan, of course, are the wealthy women of northern Israel, and their their crime is that they oppress the poor and needy, they are gluttonous, and what will be the result of their crimes? A violent exile. The time will surely come, verse 2, when you will be taken wall and you will be cast out toward Harmon. Then finally we have a modified lawsuit against Gilgal and Bethel. Both Gilgal and Bethel were places of pilgrimage and places of worship in the days, in these days of Israel's history. And in a sarcastic way, Amos announces to the people, verse 4, go to Bethel and sin, go to Gilgal and sin yet more. He's, he's not really wanting them to do this, but he's saying in a very sarcastic way, okay, go ahead and go to Gilgal, go to Bethel, and just keep adding sin to your life. And why are they doing this? Because their sacrifices and their, um, their offerings are being, done in are being given in hypocrisy. Um, in chapter 4, verses 6 through 11, the people remain unrepentant even though God has withheld the produce of the land from them, even though he has sent drought, even though he has chastised them again and again, they still remain unrepentant. And so the sentence is, verses 12 through 13, that there will be a destruction that comes on the city, on the people, and this destruction will be devastating. Added to this, then, we have in verse 13, a brief hymn fragment. These are very famous passages in the book of Amos, these so-called hymn fragments, where God is praised as the one who forms the mountain, creates the winds, and reveals his thoughts, and the powerful God who treads on the high places of the earth. And this, of course, is a praise to God, but it's also a warning to the people as they hear these, this case being built against them that this is the God who will bring the judgment against them, the one who can do these wonderful and powerful things. 
Referring back to figure 9.2, we see that the second section of this material, of the announcements against Israel and Judah, involves laments over Israel's punishment. The logic of this is fairly straightforward. First you have the case being built against Israel, then you have laments over her punishment. Chapter 5, verse 1, we read the call to lament. Hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. And then there's a description of the tragedy that will, be, that will befall Israel. The fallen is the virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. Now there's a call to react to this kind of tragedy that's going to come in verses 4 and 6. What is the, what is the proper reaction? Verse 4, seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel, do not seek Gilgal, those places of false worship, as you recall from chapter 4, verse 4. Instead, verse 6, seek the Lord and live, or he will sweep through you, um, through the house of Joseph like a fire. Now, the address then is given, another address is given to the fallen one, beginning with verse 7, and accusations are made, and they're told that God knows their sins. He knows that they cast righteousness to the ground. God understands and he hates them for doing these sorts of things, for trampling on the poor and doing these terrible crimes. But then in verse uh, 15 and 16, there's another call to react. What are they supposed to do? Verse 14, they are to seek good, not evil. Why? So that they may live. Then again, verse 15, hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. You'll notice here that Amos does not promise that repentance will necessarily bring about the mercy of God, but he does offer it to them as a possibility that they should repent, that they should turn back to the Lord, hate evil, love good, and then perhaps God will have mercy on the remnant. Then we have a description of the mourning that's to be taking place because of the destruction that's going to come. There will be wailing in the streets and cries of anguish in every public square, verse 16. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. And so we find then, following the building of a case through these modified reeves or lawsuits, that we find a, um, a section that deals with lamenting over Israel's punishment. Then as we move through the logic of this, referring back to figure 9-2, following the lament is a series of woes. Remember that woe oracles are judgment oracles that begin with the word woe that indicates a, um, a very severe and horrible condition for those who are being addressed. And the woes begin in chapter 5, verse 18. First is a woe for those, against those who long for the day of the Lord. Now you remember that this um, notion of the day of the Lord is a complicated notion. Looking at figure 9.6, we have a discussion here of what the day of the Lord means. The Yom Yahweh, or day of the Lord, that's found here in Matthew 5.18, this is the first time we've come to it in our study, so we need to think about it together, has a background in the ancient Near East. Ancient Near Eastern texts often have this notion of a royal political motif that indicates that a worthy king could defeat all of his enemies in a single day so that the king, the day of a particular king was the day when this king would come out and defeat all of his enemies. That's the basic notion in the ancient Near East and you can look at the article that's referred to here. This ancient Near Eastern concept of 
the day of the king being the day of great victory, defeat for his enemies and great security and blessings and prosperities for the king's people. This is applied to Israel's king. In Israel, the day of the king is applied to the great king, the Lord, or Yahweh, and so it's called the day of Yahweh. And this is used to describe his intervention into history to destroy his enemies and to establish his kingdom. And of course, for the most part, this notion of the day of Yahweh came to be a very positive term or a positive concept for Israel because it meant great blessings for Israel. But in some respects, you have to remember that the prophets often use this concept of the day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh, Yom Yahweh, as a curse for Israel. And the reason for this is because the sins of the Israelites had turned them into the enemies of God rather than the people of God. As a result, the Yom Yahweh or Day of the Lord was going to be a day of dread and a day of horror for them as well as for the other enemies of God and instead of being a time of blessing. Now the New Testament uses this expression, the Day of the Lord, to refer primarily to the second coming of Christ. And the situation that we're facing here in Amos chapter 5 verse 18 is that the Israelites listening to Amos were interested in and they were even praying for the day of the Lord to come. Why were they doing this? Because they believed that the day of the Lord would be the day of God's intervention and the, thus the destruction of their foes. But Amos is saying that the intervention of God, the Yom Yahweh, will include judgment on the apostasy of Israel. And so he says to them, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord in Israel. It's not going to be a day of blessing. It's going to be a day of darkness and not light. And that's, that's basically the notion here that's going on in chapter 5, verse 18. Amos does give an explanation. He shows them the, he gives them a number of accusations, their hypocritical worship, their idolatry, and what would be the sentence? Verse 27, Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. And we know, of course, that this took place certainly by 722. There's a second woe. Chapter 6, verse 1, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. Complacency was the big problem in northern Israel because it was a time of prosperity. And let's make the point here that complacency is the problem for every believer who experiences prosperity in the world. As I've traveled around the world and have met Christians who live in prosperous lands and Christians who live in hardship, what I've noticed is that complacency is the characteristic of Christians who live in prosperous lands. Uh, this would certainly be true of my own life and it would be true of the Christians that I know in my own church or in my own denomination. We are very prosperous people and so there's a complacency about life and about religious commitment, zeal for Christ and zeal against sin. We're, we sort of yawn as we think about the things of God. But for people who live in other parts of the world, I've traveled, for instance, to China or to Mongolia or to uh, the former Soviet Union. These people are not living in prosperity and you find it difficult to find Christians there who are complacent about their faith. If they're in the church, they're excited and they're committed to their, um, to their Lord and to the prospects that are ahead of them as believers. Um, Amos, of course, is dealing with people who are not in that kind of a situation. He's dealing with the complacency because of the riches that they have. He mentions in verses 2 through 6 
their pomp and callousness as they live their lives out in luxury. And so in verse six, chapter 6, verse 7, he gives this sentence, Therefore you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. So woes of punishment come, upon, come to those who are expecting and longing for the day of the Lord and for those who are complacent in Samaria. This brings us then to the last section of this, of this material in the book of Amos, the divine oath against Israel. Chapter 6, verses 8 through 14. In this material, what we have is a divine oath of judgment against northern Israel. Look at verse 8. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. Here we have a sentence beginning this oracle of judgment. Then verses 12 through 13 give the accusation and then finally another sentence in verse 14. For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, O house of Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Labo Hamath to the valley of the Arabah. So here we find something that takes place only occasionally in the prophetic material. You actually have Yahweh entering into an oath of judgment, chapter 6, verse 8. These oaths of judgment secure the prospect of eventual doom for the people who are the object of the, of the curse. Unlike most oracles of judgment that have the potential of being averted by repentance, averted by the prayers of the people, these divine oaths seal the fate of the people who receive them. So at this point, we find a climax to the announcements of Amos in chapter 6, verses 8 through 14. The structure of this is extremely important to get, get a hold of as you think about what's going on in this middle section of the book of Amos. Look at figure 9.8, dealing now with the original meaning. Notice the structure, the logic of this material from chapter 3 through chapter 6. You have a case being built, then a lament over the sorrows that are coming, with of course even at that point the prospect of repentance bringing about a change bringing about an, a, a, a diversion of the judgment that's being threatened. Then woes come on the people as they sit in their complacency and as they long for the day of the Lord. But all of this finds its climax, its crescendo in the divine oath where the fate of Israel is sealed by divine word. So basically in this second major section of the book of Amos we have a series of announcements that seal the fate of northern Israel and these announcements make it very clear that there is no escaping the judgment that would come in 722. This brings us then to the third major section of the book of Amos, not so much his announcements but his visions and associated materials, chapter 7, 1 through 9, 10. This brings us to Roman numeral 2 in our lecture, the visions of Amos. And these visions are found in chapters 7, 1 through 9, 10. Let's talk about the basic content of these visions. In effect, what we have is at first a series of quick visions in chapter 7, 1 through 17, then a second vision of the ripe fruit and a third vision at the altar. And so let's walk through these various visions and see what takes place. What we have in the first section, in 7, 1 through 17, looking at figure 9.10, is a series of visions 
the first being that of a locust, the second of fire, and then a plumb line. And in this material, Amos sees things that God is planning or preparing to do in the heavenly realms, and then he intervenes on the behalf of Israel. These are interesting passages. We need to look at them a little carefully. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, 7-1. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the second crop was coming up, when they had stripped the land clean, and I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive, how can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. Keep in mind here that we find the judgment being prepared. The prophet intervenes through prayer, and God relents. He turns back from sending the judgment that he had prepared. This will not happen, the Lord said. Then we get the second vision. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. Once again, the prophet intercedes, and God says he relents. Verse 6, so the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. This, again, points to the idea of how important intervening historical contingencies can be. When a prophet announces that a judgment's coming, or when he has a vision, in this case, that a judgment is about to come, the prophet can intercede and ask God not to do it, and many times God will relent from what he had prepared to do. As difficult as that may be to reconcile with the transcendence of God and his eternal decrees, his immutability, this is still a part, a part of the picture that the prophets give us of our God, and it's one that we need to bring to our people. Most of us, again, would be looking, if we had been in Amos' shoes and we had seen the locusts prepared or the fire coming, we would have said, well, I guess this is what God wants. May God's will be done, and we would let it go. But that's not what the faithful Amos did. Instead, he interceded on the behalf of the people and cried out for mercy, and God did relent. But now we come to the third in this brief series of visions. Verse 7, this is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see? A plumb line, I said. Then the Lord said, look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Jacob will be destroyed. The sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. And, by my, and my sword, with my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Notice something. Amos does not intercede at this point. There's no explanation given why. He just doesn't. And, of course, we're left with this very serious impression then that this vision will come about. The plumb line has been held up against the house of Samaria, and Samaria will be destroyed. This That's is the first of the series of visions in this third portion of the book of Amos, where Amos announces from seeing things in heaven that indeed Samaria will be destroyed. We have at the end of this what I consider to be an explanatory section, chapter 7 verses 10 through 17. This is a little narrative, a narrative about the conflict between Amos and Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, in the service of Jeroboam the king. The conflict basically was this, that Amos was announcing judgment, and this was not a very popular message because it hurt the economy and it hurt uh, the prospects of the future for the nation of Israel. And so the priest at Bethel tells him to stop preaching, stop prophesying. And Amos says, no, I'm going to prophesy because I am not a professional prophet. Verse 14, Amos answered Amaziah, I am neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I, am a sh I was a shepherd. 
and I also took care of sycamore trees. But the Lord told, took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. And so Amos is saying, I'm not in your hire. I'm not a professional prophet. I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. That's a professional student of prophecy. And so leave me alone. I'm doing what God wants me to do. And I think in many respects this little narrative that seems to be out of place in this, or at least oddly set in this context, really does fit into the context well. Because this first vision, um, this first series of visions in chapter 7, 1 through 17, focuses in on Amos' own attitude toward northern Israel. You'll notice that Amos is being accused of, of dealing with Israel in a way that is not appropriate, in a way that might even call into question his motivations. But the fact is, is that this series of visions where he intercedes on the behalf of Israel twice and causes God to relent from sending judgment really demonstrates that Amos has love and compassion for Israel and he's making his announcements of judgment out of concern for them, not out of uh, severity or harshness or because he doesn't like the northern Israelites. Okay, this brings us to figure 911, the second vision. And this is the vision of the ripe fruit, chapter 8, verse 1. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked, a basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my, for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. There's an explanation that's given then in verses 4 through 14 as to why God will do this. And the answer, of course, is because of their sins. And then attached to this vision is an, an oracle of judgment that explains what's going on. Verses 4 through 6, the people have been cheating the poor, and as a result of that, verses 7 through 14, destruction and upheaval will come. So we have the same pattern, a vision and an explanation given. Then we come to figure 9:12, the third vision in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. This, is take, this takes place at the altar of God. We can't be sure exactly where this altar is, whether it's maybe at Bethel, or some have even suggested in Jerusalem, though that's difficult to substantiate. But it goes like this, 9-1. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. And this threat of judgment that comes through this vision then is explained first in the hymn of praise in verses 9 5 through 6, where it demonstrates in another hymn fragment, and you see this here, that God is powerful and God is exalted. But then the explanation continues with an oracle of judgment in verses 9, 7 through 10. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? Now there's a great passage, isn't it? The Israelites the same as the Cushites? Did I not bring up Israel from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans from Kir? And so we see here that the Egypt... Um, that they are being treated now like the other nations under the judgment. Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. And so we see then that God says that he will indeed destroy the people, probably focusing both on the north and the south in this final oracle associated with the third vision. So what's the meaning of these visions? Figure 9.13. We have the visions of judgment, a series of them, where the true and properly motivated visions of the prophet are given to the people. And these visions become lessons for the Judahites, that they should see their own future in Amos' properly motivated visions. 
That is to say that they too will come under the judgment of God, even as Israel did in 722, if they do not turn back from their sins. This brings us then to Roman numeral 3, the New Testament use of Amos. As we've done with the book of Hosea, we want to look and see how the New Testament uses the book of Amos. And from those patterns, perhaps develop ways in which we can appeal to the book of Amos and use it today in the Christian church. First, of course, we have letter A, the moral principles, figure 914. There are a number of places in the book of Amos where moral principles are derived for New Testament writers. For example, Jude, verse 23, alludes to Amos 4.11, this passage that we read earlier, where a remnant of Israel will survive like a burning stick snatched from the fire. And Jude says that that's what we should be doing. We should be rescuing doubters like snatching burning sticks from the fire. There's a moral principle in 5.13 where Amos says that the wise should be silent because of the troubled times that are coming that lead to exile. And There's another moral principle that's found in Amos chapter 5, verse 15, where Amos calls Israel to hate evil and love good in the hope of receiving God's blessing. In Romans 12, 9, Paul instructs the Christians that they should hate evil and love good as well. And then finally, Amos 5, 25 through 27, Amos describes the apostasy of Israel, and Stephen uses these descriptive terms in his sermon in Acts chapter 7 to describe the rebellious character of Israel. And so we find that the moral principles of Amos carry over into the New Testament age, and we can look back on the book of Amos for such moral principles as well. Perhaps the most important use of the book of Amos in the New Testament is found in Acts chapter 15, verses 16 and 17. And this is a passage that's very well known because it, is, it has to do with the Jerusalem Council where the church was deciding what to do about the Gentiles who were coming into its ranks. Did the Gentiles have to be circumcised as well as baptized, or could they just be baptized and then left alone? Well, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, we've looked at this passage, is a passage that deals with a prophecy about the restoration period, that is, the period of time that would come after the exile when the Davidites would gain possession of the Gentile nations, that the house of the Sukkot David, the tent of David, the tabernacle of David would be reestablished and then that the people would rise up and conquer their enemies. Well, James uses this passage to deal with the issue of controversy in the early church and that is how to deal with the Gentiles. He, he said, says in Acts chapter 15, verse 15, these words, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. That is to say that he believes that the prophets support his view that Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. And how does he do this? By quoting Amos chapter 9. After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and, it will, and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, that, 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 have, been done, that have been known for ages. It is my judgment, he says, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So in effect, what happens is this. James takes a restoration prophecy, one that was very physical and very realistic, very this earthly, and he says that this restoration prophecy about the raising of the tent of David 
and the military victory that was promised to Israel is being fulfilled in the spreading of the gospel to the Gentile nations. And this fits, of course, with the overarching theme of the New Testament, that holy war of the Old Testament corresponds in the New Testament period to the spiritual battles that we fight as Christians on a day-to-day -day basis. James is saying that the spreading of the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles is the fulfillment of this promise in the book of Amos. Now, how did that come about? This, if you had asked Amos if that's what he thought would come from his prophecy, I'm sure he would have said no. He would have said, no, we're going to have a Davidite who will sit on the throne, and this Davidite will have a physical kingdom, and he will physically conquer his enemies. Why then does, do we shift from a physical war to a spiritual war in the New Testament? And the answer is, as figure 915 suggests, historical contingencies that came between the prophecies of Amos and their fulfillment in the New Testament. What were these contingencies? Well, many, but let me just summarize it this way. The restoration period did begin. We, you can look at the history of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and you can see that the promises of the reestablishment of David's kingdom, the rebuilding of the temple, the rise of the people of God again, and the gathering in of the Israelites into their homeland had begun as early as the days of Zerubbabel and certainly through the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. But the difficulty was that the people of God failed to carry through with the restoration program. As the books of Ezra and Nehemiah illustrate, they continued to sin, they continued to rebel, and so God withdrew His blessing from them, and the restoration period was postponed or delayed. There was a period, in fact, we call it the intertestamental period, a period of darkness, a period of woe and sin in Israel where she was under the rulership of other nations all during that time, the Greeks and then the Romans. And then in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that exile, the restoration period began again with the coming of Jesus. And of course, Jesus is the son of David. And with this son of David coming to earth, the establishment of the kingdom beginning in his life and his work, and then in his, resurrected, his resurrection when he took the throne of his father David, we find the rising of the Sukkot David, that is the tent of David, rising up. And now James is saying that with the, with the rising of the Sukkot David, comes the holy war, and that holy war is the spreading of the gospel to the Gentile nations. And it's on the basis of that that we can begin to look back at many sections of the book of Amos and other prophetic books and see that the restoration prophecies that they give refer to our day because in Christ came the restoration. The coming of Jesus was not something brand new or something that was unanticipated by the prophets, but it was not something that was directly anticipated by the prophets either. Instead, the coming of Jesus was in fulfillment of their prophecies of restoration, the restoration of Israel and the spreading of Israel over all the nations of the earth. And it's through the kingdom of Christ and the gospel that spread through his servants that the kingdom of David does indeed spread all over the world. And then finally, with the return of Christ, the kingdom of God will come in all of its splendor and all of its glory. To use the words of Isaiah and the book of Revelation, a new heavens and a new earth will be formed at the second coming of Christ. This brings us then to the appropriation of this material, figure 916. We have the announcements against Israel and the visions against Israel. In the original meaning level, 
the Judahites reading this book were to see themselves and the threats against themselves as they noticed the destructions of 722 coming or having already gone, they should have been thought, thinking of their own lives as, as they corresponded to the words of Amos. In the New Testament, Amos' wor words of judgment warn us against apostasy and tell us that we must remain faithful as Christians so that we do not come under the judgment of God either. And so we've seen then the book of Amos with its four major parts, Israel and Judah being treated like the other nations under judgment, then the announcements, the great visions of judgment, and then finally that magnificent ending to the book of Amos where despite the judgments that come upon the house of God, the house of Judah, the house of Israel, we find that the house of David, the Sukkot David, the tabernacle of David, will rise up and it will conquer the nations. This, of course, will be the period of the restoration, the hope of every Christian, every believer in the world, that Jesus' kingdom will be victorious and that the enemies of God will be destroyed. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.